This is Northwest This Week with your host, Mark Christopher. It's become such a popular program simply because as a 24-7 news center, even a news junkie can't keep up with all these stories from our award-winning staff. That's why we created the show as a podcast originally, and in popularity, put it on the air right now. You are about to catch up have a recap of the top stories of the past week. It is Northwest News this week, ending for the week of February 4. For example, a lot of work for the Washington State Legislature, a glimpse at a changing and evolving tech industry, and a plan to raise King County property taxes to pay for drug and mental health treatment. Just some of the stories we're about to share. Let's get you caught up. Court records on involuntary mental health commitments would be available to the Washington State Patrol for gun background checks. It's under a measure before state lawmakers. Right now, the WSP is limited to what's in the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, or NICS. So Patrol Captain Neil Weaver says they don't have access to check into the court records to make sure they have the right person and the proper information. This creates a situation where A, the person is wrongfully denied a firearms transfer or concealed pistol license, or B, the NICS indices record is removed in a firearm transfer CPL is issued to someone who is truly prohibited. The only person testifying against House Bill 1599 was Laurie Lane of Buckley, who says the state patrol already has access to NICS and that the system should be strengthened. Adding another one of these, that bothers me. It seems to me way too much when we already have one 10-day background check as is. Lawmakers are also considering House Bill 1600, which would allow access to sealed juvenile records to look for crimes that would disqualify someone from buying a gun. Ryan Harris, North Northwest News Radio. Efforts continue in Olympia to ease restrictions on police pursuits. Northwest News Radio's Frank Lindsay sharing this week that some law enforcement agencies believe the current restrictions have led to an increase in crime. In 2021, lawmakers made it legal for officers to chase suspects only when they are accused of a violent offense, a sex offense, or when the officer has reasonable suspicion the driver is under the influence. What we've learned over the last 18 months is that the policy, we didn't get it right. On Tuesday, Jeff DeVere from the Washington coalition of police and sheriffs testified in favor of House Bill 1363, which would allow a pursuit if an officer has reasonable suspicion that the person has committed a crime or is committing a crime. Leslie Cushman from the Washington Coalition for Police Accountability urged legislators to leave the new law in place. I think the law is saving lives at a time when fatalities are on the rise. This is one of three bills proposed this session that would change the law to remove language specifying the types of offenses for which an officer can initiate a pursuit. Frank Lindsay, Northwest News Radio. In Olympia, the legislature considering a bill also to eliminate the statute of limitations on civil claims for child sexual abuse. House Bill 1618 would allow victims of abuse to seek civil claims years, even decades after the abuse happened. In some cases, the victim may not know of the harm caused by the perpetrator until the statute of limitations has technically expired. That's committee staffer Yelena Baker explaining the intent of the bill, which was sponsored by Democrat Daria Farivar. But insurance companies and advocates kids for tort reform are skeptical. Lobbyist Carrie Silverman. While some may view statutes of limitations as arbitrary, they serve a critical purpose. They allow judges and juries to evaluate liability before records are discarded and witnesses are gone before memories fade to make accurate decisions. Also of concern to some is that if passed, the law would apply to every single case retroactively, potentially allowing a wave of lawsuits from years ago that the accused cannot possibly defend against. The bill has only had its first hearing. 
Jeff Pogel in Northwest News Radio. Legislation that would require insurance companies to cover hearing aids one step closer to becoming law as well. Shanna and Ethan Porter's little girl Naomi has hearing loss that requires a bone-anchored conductive device at a cost of more than $9,000. She wasn't hearing anything in her environment or my voice. She didn't know her own name. Shanna tells KXOY Naomi lost her hearing at just four months old without any coverage in their insurance for the hearing aids she needs the couple scraped and saved to afford the expensive aids so she could hear. I'm excited for my new hearing aids. In Washington, hearing aids for minors are not covered by private insurance companies, but a bill moving through state legislature would change that. The measure has passed out of a committee this week and moves on to appropriations. According to the bill report, hearing loss impacts 15% of adults and one in 1,000 kids. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Carlene. We're hearing two Republicans voted against the bill, raising concerns about the additional cost to insurance coverage. There was also legislation this week that would make Washington only the second U.S. state to own and operate its own bank. To explain, Corwin Hick. Every town, city, and county has to stash its revenue dollars somewhere. Why not in a bank owned by the state? When I talk about this, I talk about Washington tax dollars going back into Washington communities. That's State Senator Liz Lovelett and a Cordes Democrat talking about the bill to establish a public infrastructure bank, a statewide co-op, really. Such a bank, she says, would allow communities to sidestep the sometimes aggravatingly drawn-out appropriations process. It leaves communities in a place where they're 10 or 20 years down the line before they're going to get that project finished. Critics point out banking is not really a state government kind of business. After all, only North Dakota currently runs a state bank. On the other hand, Levelet says, What do we have to lose, you guys? What if this just works as intended? The state would have to step up financially to become a financial institution. The bill calls for an appropriation sufficient to allow the state to issue debt with a competitive rating. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. With tax season off and running, the push is on to remind the public about the new Working Families Tax Credit. Here's what you need to know. 400,000 households are eligible statewide. This is a historic day. This is 15 years in the making. Emily Vionic is with the Working Families Tax Credit Coalition. If you earned less than $60,000 last year, you could be eligible for upwards of $1,200. The United Way is helping low and moderate income families prepare their taxes at the main library in Seattle. Tax credits helped Nia Jackson during the pandemic. She has two sons. I was able to buy school clothes and shoes for my kids to wear instead of hunting through stuff at Goodwill. Critics argue Washington has the most inequitable tax code in America. Sterling Harders, who represents thousands of caregivers at Labor Union SEIU, says the fight's not over. Your voice can be heard. You can make a difference and you got to make your voice heard because what we do matters. And new legislation is making the rounds at the state capitol that would expand the Working Families Tax Credit. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. We'll get you updated here soon in our next segment of the plan to move people off of natural gas and also iPhone security. Right now, though, as you continue your budgets for all these concerts coming to our region here this year, a concert ticket meltdown has led to the proposal of a new bill in our state. Marina Rockinger with details. Baby, now we got bad blood. 
in November, Ticketmaster created bad blood among fans of Taylor Swift due to major glitches on the company's website when tickets went on sale for the singer's latest tour. The ticket disaster left fans upset after waiting hours in numerous cases just to come away empty-handed. House Bill 1648, also called the T-Swift Consumer Protection Act, sponsored by State Representative Christine Reeves, aims to protect the ticket-buying public from bots and predatory sellers. The bill before you is really uh, in response, I think, obviously, to the most recent events uh, that many of you have read in the news. But I don't think that um, this particular activity is the output, uh, but rather a symptom of a much deeper issue, which is the need for better integrity, more fairness, and better transparency in ticket sales. The bill aims to extend current prohibition on software that would interfere with fair sales. It would require a seller to be licensed in our state. It also aims to limit fees and dynamic pricing and would require price transparency. Now, one area of concern for critics of the bill is limiting of dynamic pricing, also known as surge pricing. They say it could harm the bottom line for artists and performers. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher. On the efforts of all of our reporters, our news anchors and our editors and myself, we're helping you catch up to the biggest stories of the past week. More of Northwest News This Week coming up. You're listening to Northwest This Week with Mark Christopher. These are the stories that indeed affect our lives here in the Puget Sound, even national headlines and how they fit in here to our lifestyle. We're helping to catch up here for the stories ending for the week of February 4th. The economy may be slowing down, but the high-tech job market is evolving and changing. Artificial intelligence and job training are four buzzwords often heard. Shall we talk about the worker shortage hitting the tech industry? As the high-tech industry lays off thousands, there's still a worker shortage. Silicon Valley high-tech expert Rob Enderley. We still have more openings than we have people. Uh, the issue often is, though, finding the right skill set. Right now, AI skills, for instance, are you can't get them. That's one of the areas that is in very, very short supply. That's blockchain, gaming, and cryptocurrency technology. We're building an outstanding alternative to college. But a company called Multiverse is training young people 18 to 26 for big tech like Microsoft and Google. Founder Ewan Blair on CNBC. We place those choosing not to go to college into apprenticeships with great companies. And we also reskill people already in employment in things like data analytics, project management, and software engineering. The high cost of a college education is another obstacle. John Thompson is chairman of the board at Microsoft. And having something like Multiverse that allows companies to invest in talent and them not have to worry about whether or not they are debt constrained that should improve the outcome for all companies. Artificial intelligence has more practical applications. You are Terminator, right? Yes, Sabathon Systems Model 101. Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator was impressive, but Food Verge found Flippy the Burger Flipping Robot making up for worker shortages at Buffalo Wild Wings, White Castle, and Cali Burger in Pasadena. And he's almost cheaper. If you want to add a Flippy to your restaurant, it'll cost around $3,000 a month. If we assume that the average employee gets $15 an hour, that works out to around $2,400 a month. Some tech companies are even using personality tests over hard skills to find new workers. Rob Inderley. There's a growing understanding that it's easier to train somebody into a lot of these jobs. They've been finding that if they find people that play well with others, collaborate, don't have some of the misogyny problems that often engineering schools seem to be famous for. Change in the job market is moving fast. 
John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Weeks of outrage in the Dungeons and Dragons community have led to a concession from the Renton-based company that owns the franchise. Wizards of the Coast, which is itself owned by toy giant Hasbro, sparked a firestorm of fan and creator protest by saying it would drastically revise its open gaming license, or OGL. This is the agreement under which independent companies can freely design and profit from characters and storylines for the popular D&D tabletop role-playing game. Fans posted protest videos in character. Hasbro and your Mr. Potato Head Army want me OGL? Why don't you just come here and take it from me? Despite that silliness, protesters generated serious heat, believing a revised OGL would put creators out of business and restrict new content. Basically, the OGL just let you publish uh, D&D even adjacent content without fear of, you know, the legal repercussions of Wizards of the Coast coming after you. That's producer Pete on video blog The Character Sheet. He and other critics said Wizards was biting the hand that helped D&D become nearly a billion-dollar franchise. Now, Wizards has backed down. In a statement, the company says it will not roll out a new OGL, saying the original open gaming license will remain in place untouched. One game designer tweets, quote, Thank you for reversing course. This is a very good start to winning back people's trust. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Now, let me grab this story about more security for your iPhone. Apple working to increase the security, but does anybody really need all the bells and whistles? Okay, Heather, let's dish on dongles. Many of us probably think uh, of an Amazon Fire or Google or Roku device that hooks in like a thumb drive to our TV when we hear dongle, but these are, are physical devices for our iPhones. What do they do for my privacy? So you're, I kind of love the word dongle. These are little dongles. They look like, you know, USB drives, really. They come in a few different shapes and types, but essentially they're the same size. You can wear them around your neck, stick them in your bag. And the idea is that they replace those little text codes you get when you need to authenticate your identity. Say you're logging on to a new MacBook or your iPhone, and you get that little six-digit number. Instead, you just plug this into the bottom, or if you have an NFC one, you tap it to the top of your phone, and it goes, okay, you are who you say you are. Okay, so who, who are these dongles designed for the, the primary dongle demographic? Oh, God, why didn't I think of dongle the, demographic? The, dong, so, the dongle graphic. They are for people who are already pretty secure. They've already done the basics, and they want that next level up. Um, and specifically, anyone who feels like they might be targeted directly. So somebody in the public eye, somebody in a high-ranking position at a company that might be the target of hacks somebody who has access to sensitive information, senators, things like that. Uh, one person I spoke to said, if you're not Joe Biden or Taylor Swift, like you don't really need to consider this. Uh, on the flip side, I've met a lot of people who just enjoy having a security key more than they do entering those. So at the end of the day, it depends on if you're the type of person who's going to lose one of these and just be shut out of your devices for the day, or if you are a responsible person who would keep them on your person at all times. Okay, well, I, I'm the one that would lose the dongle. There's also Same. advanced data protection mode. Uh, I, I know dark mode. I know airplane mode. This one's new to me. So already iPhones have something called data protection mode, which encrypts certain types of files on your phone, end-to-end encryption, meaning nobody can like duck into the middle, steal it. Law enforcement can't request it. Advanced data protection mode, which just went global, I think, last week, lets you encrypt even more file types. Specifically, the important ones here are your iMessage backups will be encrypted, so law enforcement can't get it, a data breach won't be able to see them, your photos will be encrypted, 
and anything in your notes app. People love to put weird things in the notes app, you know, more power to them. So this really adds a level of protection for all the many sensitive files on your phone. You actually won't notice much of a difference. I feel like this is for a wider audience than the, the security keys. Anybody can turn it on. Uh, you do want to make sure that you have some backups in place in case you get you know, locked out of your devices. You can add a backup contact. You can get a security code. But um, you can also turn it off if you decide that it's just too much work. As speaking of things that uh, you know, maybe are too much work for us or, or not useful all the time, lockdown mode. So lockdown mode is the most intense thing on this list. This is for people who are very aware that they are, in fact, being targeted. Um, they've already experienced some sort of unsettling hacking attempts, uh, really like high-profile journalists covering, you know, a problematic government somewhere is a good example. So lockdown mode, it will make your phone much more secure and protect you from a whole bunch of unknown hacks. There are trade-offs, though. Your text messages might not work the same. Somebody can't just send you a link. Your web browser might not work the same because they're, they're trying to shut down features that can be exploited by hackers. So, and you can also turn that off if you, you know, if you feel unsafe now, but you feel safer later, or if it's too much trouble. But is any of it really necessary? You can find out much more on how to protect your privacy on your cell phone online at WashingtonPost.com and the latest from Heather Kelly. Taylor Van Syce of Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher. We're recapping the top stories of the week here at Northwest News this week. Health officials warning against the use of an eye care product. In a press release, the State Department of Health advised the public to discontinue use of Esri Care artificial tears until further notice while they investigate a possible link between the product and antibiotic-resistant infections. The DOH says the bacteria responsible for the infections is a variant of a pathogen commonly found in soil and water. Epidemiologists have identified 50 such cases in Washington and 10 other states since May. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. Puget Sound Energy being criticized by environmental groups over a plan to move people off natural gas. Jeff Poljula with a story. The program affects some 10,000 customers. They would receive financial assistance and or education on how to electrify their homes by switching over furnaces, water heaters, and other appliances from natural gas to electricity. It was part of a settlement reached last year as PSE sought to increase rates, according to the Seattle Times. But getting the plan off the ground would mean 200 low-income households would receive significant grants. Now that plan is getting pushback from environmental groups who say many more people should be eligible for help. PSE says those numbers are preliminary and they're updating them as soon as they get feedback from stakeholders about the scope of the project. Jeff Podula, Northwest News Radio. Just ahead of Northwest News this week, guns in cars. What numbers we're learning at Pierce County this past week and an effort we're seeing for safe streets. Right now, we found out this week there's a win for the fish in Alaska and those who rely on the industry to make a living. The Biden administration is issuing a final determination to stop the controversial proposed pebble mine in Bristol Bay. It's a move applauded by Washington U.S. Senator Maria Cantwell. No company will ever be able to stick a mine on top of some of the best salmon habitat in the world. The Environmental Protection Agency was able to veto the project before the federal permitting process was completed using a little-known clause of the Clean Water Act. Salmon fishermen from Alaska and from my home state of Washington will continue to earn their livelihoods from Bristol Bay salmon as they have for generations. Fishermen, tribes, and opponents hope the EPA's determination spells the end for the project, but the CEO of Pebble Limited Partnerships says litigation is likely. Manda Factor, Northwest News Radio. Northwest News This Week. More of the week of February 4th, just ahead. 
You're listening to Northwest This Week, and now Mark Christopher. Welcome back. There's plans to raise property taxes by more than $1,000 over a decade, and it will head to the ballot for a vote. Ryan Harris explains. It's a levy worth $1.25 billion over nine years to pay for expanded mental health and substance treatment in King County, as well as five new centers for people in immediate crisis and temporary sites right away until those centers are built. It means an additional $121 on the property tax bill for a median-priced home to raise more than $100 million a year. Coast sponsor, King County Councilmember Sarah Perry says, We're spending $100 million a year right now, and things are getting worse. This is a much more efficient and effective use of our public dollars, so we don't just keep spinning this wheel and going back home. With only 244 residential treatment beds in the county, and no place for people to get help right away when they're in crisis, County Executive Dow Constantine pushed to get this levy passed. It'll be up for a public vote in an April special election after the council's 9 nothing vote. Ryan Harris, North Northwest News Radio. The capture of released convicts that have violated their parole prioritized under a new bill in the state legislature. Republican Mike Patton of Spokane has introduced Senate Bill 5226, which he says will prioritize the capture of those who should already be in custody. This is to try to refocus the department on their basic mission, number one, public safety. The department in question is the Department of Corrections, which inadvertently released thousands of inmates early several years ago due to a software miscalculation. Patton says that scandal led him to introduce this bill. So far, no one has testified against it. Jeff Pogel of Northwest News Radio. Snohomish County prosecutors dropped sexual misconduct charges against a Lake Stevens High School teacher accused of harassing a student. Since August 17th, 55-year-old Mark Hine has been on paid administrative leave during a police investigation. Police recommended two misdemeanor charges against him. Then on Monday, the case was dismissed but can be refiled if new evidence is offered. The Everett Herald reports police were in talks with the prosecution about refiling charges and the school district's investigation remains open. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. Moving on to other stories here for the week. Prosecutors in New Mexico have officially filed manslaughter charges stemming from the shooting of a cinematographer on the set of an Alec Baldwin movie. Jason, where do things stand right now with Alec Baldwin? So what we're seeing in reading in these charging documents where he's charged of two counts of involuntary felony involuntary manslaughter, both which carry different prison sentences, by the way, and he can only be convicted of one. So if it's one, it's 18 months, that's the maximum. If it's the other, it's five years, that's the maximum. But in this charging document, we get a lot of new information about what they found in their investigation, which took well over a year, and why they think Alec Baldwin in particular, along with the armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, but why really they think Alec Baldwin in particular is guilty of this and his negligence led to this death. They go into great detail talking about how in the beginning, when we're getting into the rehearsal scene that was being filmed at the time, the setup was supposed to be a close-up on Alec Baldwin with the firearm as he drew the weapon and pointed it. And you had Helena Hutchins, who's the cinematographer, and Joel Souza, who's the director, behind her. And they were both supposed... They actually, for that scene, they were supposed to be outside of the church in what's called a video village, usually, watching this all happen and unfold. But because of negligence on the part of the producers, of which Alec Baldwin was one of, and the, the, the way the crew was treated, the crew had quit. Most of the crew had quit the day before. In order for them to do the scene, they were then moved inside. Instead of being outside in this video village, 
Now, Helen Hutchins and Joel Souza, who were both shot, are inside where they shouldn't have been inside in the first place, and that they're blaming on Alec Baldwin as a producer. Also, they're saying that Alec Baldwin, 100%, no question about it, fired this gun when he never should have fired the gun in the first place. It should not have been a real weapon. It should have been a dummy weapon, they're saying. But whatever the case, Alec Baldwin should never have pulled the trigger, and they're saying that he did. Now, in an ABC News interview in a few weeks after the shooting, Baldwin claimed that the gun went off by itself. They're saying in this document, the FBI went over the gun, tried to force it to misfire. It never happened. They're saying Alec Baldwin is 100% at fault here because he did pull the trigger on this gun. Is there any sense in the, re- in the report or in these papers on how the live rounds actually got in this gun? They get into that a little bit. They say that there were actually a total of six live rounds that were found on the set. So you have the one that was actually fired and that there were another five in various points on the set. They don't get into exactly how they got there. They do clear one of the, the suppliers who supplied Hannah Gutierrez Reed, the armorer, with dummy rounds, they say that it didn't come from this one, as, as I believe she had alleged in, in a lawsuit. So they did clear, but they didn't say how the other rounds got there. And that's one of Alec Baldwin's defenses, at least through his attorney, is what he said, is that there should never have been a live round on the set and that he had no idea that there was one in the gun. But other instances of neg- negligence on Baldwin's part, at least according to the state of New Mexico, is that he was supposed to attend numerous uh, different firearms trainings before filming that they say Baldwin never did. And when they finally got him into one training that was supposed to be at least an hour long, they say that he was distracted for the whole time looking at his phone, and it only lasted about 30 minutes. And Baldwin and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed both facing the same charges? Yes, they're both facing the same charges. ABC's Jason Nathanson with us on the Northwest Newsline. Bill O'Neill of Northwest News, and who also produces here, Northwest News This Week. Thank you, Bill. If you take your gun with you in your car, Marina Rockinger has a request from Tacoma Police, and that is... A gun is stolen out of a vehicle in Tacoma every 48 hours. Officer Wendy Haddow with the Tacoma Police Department tells me the request is simple. We're asking people to help us out and not leave their guns unattended in vehicles. She says last year alone, 202 guns were stolen out of vehicles. And that doesn't count cars that were stolen that happened to have guns inside. It was simply from car prowl thefts. So we're just asking people to keep their firearms secured. Don't think that leaving them locked in your vehicle makes them secure because it does not, unfortunately. If you have a gun stolen from your vehicle, Officer Haddow says you need to call 911 or the police directly. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. In our next segment, who's staying and who's leaving when it comes to our city council? We'll get some updated local politics stories from Jeff Poljula in just a moment. Right now, more than $25 million from the Biden administration will come in handy as Seattle aims for zero traffic deaths by 2030. Safe streets and roads for all. That's the name of the federal program under which President Biden's Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is announcing $800 million in grant awards, including $25.6 million for Seattle's own safe streets initiatives. Seattle's hope is to forever end collisions like the hit-and-run last July near the West Seattle Bridge that killed bicycle commuter Rob Mason. He was such a loving husband. Rob's wife, Claudia. He was just happy to 
be alive and happy to have the life he had. Seattle's Vision Zero initiative seeks to eliminate traffic deaths and serious injuries by 2030. The federal money will go toward new sidewalks, speed bumps, protected bike lanes, ADA ramps, and flashing lights to help people safely cross the street. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. You're listening to Northwest News this week, ending here for the week of February 4th. More stories coming up. You're listening to Northwest This Week. Here's Mark Christopher. And as we return, I'm looking at our updated files of stories over the years. And how about the controversial tax on sugary drinks in Seattle? We're now finding out this past week it's hit a dry spell. Northwest News' John Lobertini reporting the impact on public health could be far-reaching. It was a simple concept, cut down on the consumption of sugary drinks by raising the price. The city gets a cut, and that helps pay for healthy eating programs. 2020 saw a large dip in revenues. But the pandemic and remote work have left the program in freefall. Co-chair Tanika Thompson-Bird. Reported ounces of syrups and concentrates fell approximately 52 percent. More than 100 programs across Seattle depend on the sugar tax, like the prenatal to three program. Co-chair Jen Moss. Early experiences occurring when a child's brain and behavior are being shaped affect a child's ability to learn, to get along with others. The tax dollars are slowly coming back, but it won't last if fewer sugary drinks are sold. Councilmember Teresa Moss We should be working to make sure that we are filling the revenue needs for uh, food security across our region. But how? That's always the question in city government. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Now for local politics, Seattle City Council Member Tammy Morales says she will seek a second term. Already Shama Sawant, Lisa Herbold, Deborah Juarez, and Alex Peterson have said they are done, and Council Member Tammy Morales says she doesn't begrudge any of her colleagues for calling it quits. But for me, this isn't a reason to give in. We have a chance to build healthy, resilient neighborhoods. We have a chance to manage the growth that's coming so that our children and our elders and our neighbors can thrive in place. Morales says she will be making housing policy a top priority if elected to another term. Jeff Pogel in Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Jeff. And a reminder, too, Jeff Pogel is host of what we call Politicast. It is a podcast available at nwnewsradio.com and also featured here weekends at various times on AM 1000 and FM 97.7. Now, moving into lifestyle, owners of low-income properties who don't raise their tenants' rent may be eligible for some tax relief under legislation in Olympia. It would allow local governments to set up an affordable housing incentive program to preserve affordable housing for very low-income households who can't afford rising rent prices. It would allow multifamily property owners who meet certain criteria to be exempted from state and local property taxes for a period of six years. King County Assessor John Wilson testified in support. There are roughly 50,000 units in King County alone that would be affordable under this legislation. This would preserve these units. The building has to be at least 25 years old and have a certain number of units that are designated for those with low or very low incomes. Right now in Seattle, less than 2% of apartments rent for under $1,000. 60% are over 2000 according to RentCafe.com. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Even as House of Representatives and the White House argue over the debt ceiling, tech companies cut jobs and the Federal Reserve considers another interest rate hike this past 
last week. Analysts seem to be a bit more hopeful about the global economy. David, as you put it in your report last night, this is the result of disasters averted rather than any new boom. What kind of potential disasters are you referring to? Sure. Well, if you go back to how the situation looked last fall, what people were worried about uh, were a couple of things. First, in in Europe, in the wake of the war in Ukraine, there were concerns about an an energy shortage because of the cutoff of Russian natural gas that might cause German factories to have to shut down a couple of days a week to cope. And in the United States, the worry was any day now we were going to fall into a recession, unemployment would go higher, uh, and China seemed locked into this perpetual zero COVID policy uh, that uh, kept everybody trapped in their house uh, and often interfered with the production of uh, export-oriented factories. So those were the worries uh, for the three major economic engines uh, for the global economy. And you fast forward to today, and none of that has happened. Uh, To go in reverse order, China uh, unexpectedly ended the zero COVID policy and has had a quite abrupt reopening. That's meant hundreds of millions of people have gotten infected and a a tragic number have died, but their economy is starting to gear up again. Uh, Europe has benefited from a somewhat milder than expected uh, winter so far uh, and has been able to stockpile more gas, more natural gas than was expected. So they're doing a little bit better than folks thought they would be. And here in the U.S., uh, the, the data we got for the fourth quarter shows a surprisingly resilient economy so far. Now, it's not all sunshine and daisies, though, even though IMF says in the forecast it's not a global recession, but individual countries could still face recessions like like the United Kingdom, right? Yeah, the, the UK is, uh, is the worst, uh, or is expected to post the worst year of any major economy, along with dealing with the fallout from their withdrawal from the European Union, the so-called Brexit. They've also got a very high inflation. Uh, they've got a monetary tightening to deal with that, which is depressing activity. And the, the labor force, the size of their labor force, is still not back to uh, where it was before the pandemic. So the outlook there is, is almost uniformly gloomy. It's going to be a very tough year for them. And in my eye, it looks like the World Bank is kind of siding with that, that UK outlook, even though the IMF is hopeful. The World Bank is painting a darker picture. Well, in terms of the global outlook, yes. The uh, the, the World Bank, because they use a, a slightly different methodology, which I don't want to bore anyone with, but they also give less weight overall to some of the bigger emerging market uh, economies like India and China, which in the IMF's view are going to be about half of the story in terms of global growth. So you've got a bit of an argument among economists who work for these two organizations. You know, if if past experience is any guide, the truth is probably somewhere uh, in the middle. Uh, And the important thing is, as you said at the outset, this is really, you know, we've, we've dodged landmines for the last few months, which is good news. But nobody's expecting a a boom, and there are still plenty of risks to be navigated going forward. And there is a lot more to dig into this, and you can find it all from David Lynch online at WashingtonPost.com. David Lynch, Global Economics Correspondent. Coming up, it's one of those historic icons of the Northwest, and it only took 75,000 different drawings to build it.
in three years. Meanwhile, manufacturers of low-alcohol beverages made from vodka and other spirits complain the taxes they pay are unfairly high. New legislation would level the playing field, we found out. Backers of Senate Bill 5375 say Washington has a double standard when it comes to grocery store hard beverages. In one example, Vicki Christofferson with the Association of Spirits and Wine Distributors compares the taxes on a flavored White Claw hard seltzer with 8% alcohol to a Kettle One vodka drink with 4% alcohol. The 4% vodka beverage is subject to state liquor taxes, $24 a gallon. So you have a lower alcohol product taxed 100 times higher than a higher alcohol product. So we're just trying to create some parity. Scott Waller, a violence prevention advocate, says the disparity serves a purpose. The beverages he calls Alcopop are marketed to young people. The shelves at grocery stores and other retailers are overflowing with these products that are sweet, low calorie and contain actual spirits. And he says the higher price prevents overindulgence. The bill would normalize the tax on distributors for various canned and bottled non-beer alcoholic drinks at $2.50 per gallon. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. More to recap of this week of February 4th. Welcome to Northwest News This Week. Northwest This Week continues. Quite a bit of aviation news this past week. And as I get to this next story, it's just amazing how many of us have connection to it. Myself, my father, was a pilot, one of the first. He got into training. And at one point, he could name every captain who was at the helm of these jetliners for years. And when it came to delivery of these jetliners to various countries, the pilots were so excited about what they learned in class, they would invite him to fly along. He was a world traveler. The last Boeing 747 left the nest this week in Everett following an emotional tribute from the generations who built the Queen of the Skies. It's a particular honor for me to represent those who brought this airplane to life, the Incredibles. The Incredibles built Boeing's first 747 in 16 months. Former CEO Phil Condit, a young engineer at the time, says the deal was consummated with a handshake. Head of Pan American, Bill Allen, the head of Boeing, one trip said, if you build it, I'll buy it. And Bill Allen said, if you'll buy it, I'll build it. Boeing built the 747 for more than 50 years, 1,574 to be exact. The original jumbo jet changed air travel, says Carolyn Corvia, former senior VP. International routes that would have been impossible a few years earlier were now becoming a reality. The ceremony was streamed to a worldwide audience. The first decade of 747 service began on January 22nd, 1970. Streamed from the enormous hangar where the 747 was built, John Roundhill was in charge of strategy and development. The freight operators banded together to bring the 747 to all corners of the globe. The last Boeing 747 was delivered to its new owner, Atlas Air. But the memories, they'll stay in Everett. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Boeing also announced this past week plans to expand its production capacity. Kathy O'Shea with a story. A Boeing spokesperson said the company will establish a fourth 737 MAX production line beginning in the second half of 2024. The company says the expansion is driven by rising demand for the plane, especially the newer models. The new line will increase 737 MAX production capacity by 25%. Snohomish County Executive Dave 
Summers says Boeing's announcement confirms that the county's aerospace future is secure and bright. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. And then we also had Carlene Johnson following around more to the story of where another airport is to be built and the ideas. Would a new local airport disrupt the military was brought up in question. The military saying it would. Let's see what Carlene Johnson found out. A new commercial airport built near Joint Base Lewis McCord would be incompatible with the military's aviation operations and mission readiness requirements. That's what a JBLM spokesman is telling the News Tribune. The state's Commercial Aviation Coordinating Commission is looking at sites for a potential new airport to serve increased passenger and cargo demand. Their list is down to three. Thurston County Central, Pierce County East, and Pierce County Central. State Representative Jake Fay addressed a group of more than 500 people at an anti-airport town hall earlier this month in Graham. I can't find a good reason to pursue this any further at these three sites. The commission has to make its final recommendation by June. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. And there you go for the stories of the week of February 4th. Now you've found a way to catch up because there's just no time to catch us 24-7, even though we are here all the time. Northwest News this week for the week of February 4th. Heard every week at this time on Northwest News Radio, AM 1000, FM 97.7, also at 101.5 HD Channel 2. It's also as a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. If you enjoy this program as a podcast, we hope you'll share a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for doing that. Northwest News This Week, produced by Bill O'Neill, editor and tech advisor is Painter Webb. I'm Mark Christopher. And even though our little friend, the Groundhog, says six more weeks of winter, it will not stop us from bringing you all the news and information you need and seek 24-7 at Northwest News Radio. We'll see you next time.